You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show, Wednesday, March the 30th, pretty dank and drizzly, pretty cold as well here in TW11 this morning. Now, as we flagged up yesterday and last week, the appeal of jockey Robbie Dunn against his suspension for bullying and harassment of Bryony Frost is going to be heard today at the British Horse Racing Authority, probably beginning just about the time I press go on this podcast. He was handed an 18-month ban, you'll remember, for conduct prejudicial to the integrity, proper conduct and good reputation of horse racing. Now, he's appealing against both the findings of the independent disciplinary panel and the punishment given to him uh, just before Christmas when a ban of 18 months was imposed upon him and three of those were suspended. David Yates was following that case for the Daily Mirror. He'll be following the appeal today. Dave, what do we expect the central planks of those appeal to be, do you think? Well, I think that the starting point in the absence of anything else, I mean, one's attempts to... Uh, to, to talk over tactics of, of Robbie Dunn's appeal quite understandably came to naught um, over the last few weeks. But one interesting point of reference, Nick, is the letter that the uh, QC, Robin Matthew, and of course he's now on the team uh, at, uh, as far as Robbie Dunn is concerned, a letter that he wrote to the Racing Post in the immediate aftermath of... Uh, the case in in early December, um, he said that he was dismayed by the treatment of Robbie Dunn. Okay, fair enough. But in terms of the specifics of what they might go for uh, today, and as you say, it's it's one day has been set aside for this. Um, in his letter, Robin Matthew QC said, the process of the investigation to which he, Dunn, was subjected appears to have been chaotic and incompetent. And he rounds off the letter by saying, saying the sentence is unduly severe and Robbie Dunn may be justifiably indignant and upset at the manner in which he has been received. Um, so that gives us two ideas, doesn't it? The, 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 let's deal with the latter of those first, if we can. One is the severity of the sentence. I suspect that, if the, uh, the, the, that might be one line of attack to say that the, uh, the the sentence was essentially unreasonable. Legal eagles will be well familiar with the phrase Wensbury unreasonableness. This means that um, it was so unreasonable that no uh, competent body could have come up with that decision. No, no competent, honest body could have come up with that decision. And so they might try that. I, I think that 18 months, well, it, it might have been towards the top end of, or certainly at, or maybe beyond the top end of what most of us were expecting, whether it's Winsbury unreasonable, I think is another matter. But what they might go in on, a line that they might choose to attack, and this was something I had to be in my bonnet about at the time, and that is the process of the investigation. Um, it's interesting that in the written reasons immediately, well, that were published at the start of January into the case, um, it was stated that 
Chris Watts, the chief investigating officer, wanted to obtain a balanced picture and remain objective. Now, that was at odds with uh, what was reported on the case at the time, and that was that uh, it was Roderick Moore, QC, representing Dunn, who had said, perhaps, Mr Watts, you should have sought a more balanced picture. This was after Chris Watts, of course, no longer with the BHA, had admitted that he took a victim-focused approach uh, to his inquiry. And, and of course, there were the allegations from Tom Scudamore, Gavin Sheehan, that the, the statements that they gave did not sit with what was eventually published uh, by uh, Chris Watts or, or what was what was eventually submitted uh, by Chris Watts. So I think that's uh, those will probably be the two lines. I think the latter is probably the more interesting of the two. It, 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 it may be. This is something that is really interesting, I think, and that is that it, it was said that after, it, after the initial hearing that perhaps the... the, the independent judicial panel had acknowledged or acknowledged that that the the case for the prosecution if you like for the BHA hadn't been perfect but essentially that they had reached a just result now my reading of this and again I'm not I'm not by any means a qualified lawyer is that the higher up the legal food chain you get the more that procedure matters to people and you know the tabloid press over the decades has been uh, replete of with cases of of you know baddens who have walked free from court because there has been a defect in the procedure. So I may be barking up completely the wrong tree, but that's something that I'll be uh, looking out for because if if a, a defect in procedure, and by that we mean the objectivity of the investigating officer, whose brief was to garner all relevant material and then make a decision, um, if if there is a defect, then I suggest that that the higher up the food chain one goes, the more that that will matter, and the more difficult it will be to disregard it. We also, of course, uh, run the risk of reopening those uh, wounds which had just started to scar uh, between the PJA and the British Horse Racing Authority. Yeah, and we talked about the pressures on the new chief executive of the PGA who begins his role next week uh, in McMahon. I wanted to um, talk about the possibility of an increased sentence for, for Robbie Dunn because people said, well, this is a you know, no lose situation. He may as well roll the dice and go for an appeal. Not so. A, it's very expensive, um, and B, he could have his his sentence increased technically. Yes, indeed, he could, and and I think that that ties in with what I said about the you know the the Wensbury unreasonableness with regard to the severity of the punishment. I don't think that I I, I don't think that that's a a line that that would succeed. Personally, you, you and I, in the aftermath of, of the case, talked to many people, some of whom work or enjoy their racing, others of whom have nothing to do with the sport. And, and I don't think that I came across many people who, who thought, well, this is such an unfair uh, sentence, 18 months, three, of which three were suspended, that, that no responsible body uh, could... Uh, could have handed it down. Now, if that's true, if if, if we establish that, well, yeah, 18 months, it, it looked a bit stiff it, it, in terms of what most of us uh, thought privately, I think, um, that if, uh, 
if that sentence does come under the microscope again, it, it could easily go, or, or it could possibly go up as well as go down. Okay, full report on that tomorrow, whether it's the first day or whether the first day is the full hearing. Dave Yates, moving on. Are we paying too much to get into racecourses in Great Britain? Well, the issue of how much people have to pay to get into racecourses these days, and indeed what they do when they get there, is very much in the spotlight at the moment. We had uh, 95 quid admission at the Cheltenham Festival, didn't we, which which, uh, I think started the ball rolling. Interestingly, uh, it's been pointed out that uh, a Windsor Monday afternoon that it's 31 quid uh, to get into that. Obviously not not the popular evening meetings, but uh, when Windsor's um, season starts with a Monday afternoon, you have to pay 31 quid to get in. Um, it, it's interesting this. I, I think there are two ways of looking uh, at this, Nick. And I, I, I suspect that uh, what I'm going to say will not uh, be, uh, be popular with everybody. But of course, there is... First of all, to say um, it's the admission prices are going up and they're going up, it seems, uh, at a, a rate that's quicker than inflation. And the prices that we're used to paying, and say I don't say we, I mean people who pay to get in before people uh, want to throw the gravy train at me. Uh, we have uh, media passes which means which mean that we don't have to uh, pay to get into the race courses but people who pay are paying more and they're paying uh, more than the rate of inflation steep as that is uh, suggests that they will do um obviously when one goes to the races there are other expenses that are that one takes into account um in the case of Cheltenham car parking, there is also betting, food and drink, uh, etc. And so this is something I, sus- I suspect that's going to get, um, well, probably worse before, if it ever gets better. Um, it's obviously a, um, a consequence of the last couple of years with COVID and the way that race racing generally and race courses in particular um have been hit um the other way of looking at it i think is perhaps to uh, this this is this is a view that isn't going to be popular i don't think but just to um compare racing with perhaps other sports i, I was looking for not not a premier league uh, football club but one that is in perhaps the second tier of uh, it, the English football structure, and I happened upon Queens Park Rangers, um, a, a, a London club, of course, a West London club, uh, who are currently eighth, just outside the um, the playoff positions in the Championship. If you want to go to Queens Park Rangers uh, in the seats, which I, I presume it's seating everywhere still, then the most you will pay is forty four quid, and the 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 uh, as an adult and the, the least you will pay is 20 although the, those if we went to the theater we would call those essentially restricted view seats um generally you're paying about an average of late mid to late 30s if you average it out it's between 35 and 37 quid and so when you when you put perhaps windsor on a monday afternoon in the context of that is is it that unreasonable well, let's ask that question to the chief executive of the Racecourse Association, uh, David Armstrong, who's who's with me now. 
David, is is it unreasonable? And I'm I'm certainly not picking on a racecourse in particular, but because it's the one that was most recently brought up, is it reasonable for somebody to pay thirty one quid to go racing, say at Windsor on a Monday? And I mean, this applies across. I you know this particular point applies across all racecourses, really. Well, I think Nick, the the first thing I'd say is that each racecourse needs to make its own pricing decision based on its on its local markets, um, what its competitors are doing. And competitors in, in that, I don't mean racecourses. I mean other leisure venues, other sports, whatever they might be competing with. And each racecourse will make its own decision on what is what is the right price point. Um, but I think you know, if, you, if you were to compare racing with, with football or rugby or other major sports, I think you'd find that £31 is, is pretty reasonable, actually. It's just a little bit different, isn't it? Because... All you're doing really is walking onto a onto a ground when you're paying that paying that price to go go onto a race course. So you don't you're not guaranteed a particular seat or viewing experience. It is just to be within the grounds. So I'm guessing there comes a point on a on an ordinary day, on a quiet day, where there isn't really a sense that you're paying for any kind of experience beyond the absolutely rudimentary. Is there not a case for bringing the cost for, say, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays all the way down, even though we know that you can charge an absolute premium for those big festival days and and all the more so nowadays, as we saw at Cheltenham? Yes, we did see that at Cheltenham, absolutely. I mean, I I come back to what I said really in the first question, which is that, you know, racehorses need to make their own individual pricing decisions. Uh, And some will want to attract crowds in on those days, those Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday days, the quieter days. Others may be less concerned about um, spectator numbers on those days. It all depends on which course and, and which strategy they're following. So I, I'm, I'm a big fan, Nick, of just letting, letting the market decide. You know, let, let race courses set their pricing where they want to set their pricing. And if, if they're not achieving their objectives, then they might change the prices. Yeah, you've, you've touched on something quite interesting there, which is to what extent do race courses care about getting a crowd in on, on a quiet day? And actually, does it become cost inefficient for them to have people there they would actually rather race behind closed doors on days that aren't premium crowd focused big days i don't think i would go as far as saying they want to race behind closed doors i mean i think the the, you know, the presence of spectators you know even 500 a thousand people at a fixture is still important for the race course they still earn they still earn from that financially and it's about growing the interest in our sport we do want to make ourselves accessible to every, everybody who wants to come racing at whatever day they want to come to whatever fixture they want to come. So we must be we must be accessible and open to the public. So I wouldn't go as far as saying, um, and I, I hate the phrase behind closed doors because we spend so many weeks yeah. and months talking about it. But um, I, I wouldn't say that we want to try and achieve a situation where there are no spectators. That that wouldn't work for us. When Toaster was still in operation, they experimented with uh, letting people in for nothing and then hoping that that increased crowd would yield them a dividend in terms of food and beverage spend and tote spend and, and so forth. It didn't really work, but is there a sweet spot whereby a heavily reduced admission could get a big enough crowd and then you, you could make a, a profit out of it? I mean, are we being a bit lazy and unimaginative, do you think? I mean, there's always always new ideas to try, but the theory about free or very cheap tickets is interesting, and it's one that you know is used in other sports as well. In this, the, 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 what you're trying to do with a, an, you know, a free ticket, let's say, is not only to bring them in to spend money on food and drink and whatever, but it's also to grow loyalty. In other words, you come along, you came to the first race meeting, it was free, 
and you have the chance to really enjoy your day out and you choose to come again and next time you pay for a ticket. So it's that loyalty thing. And in, in say rugby or football, the fan comes to their home team home team games frequently in a year. They might come to 10, 15, 20 games in a year. In racing, people tend to only come, well, I think the average is about one and a half times a year for, for race goers. Now that means that the, the benefit of trying to generate loyalty using free tickets doesn't really work in racing because people aren't inclined to come that often. I mean, obviously some people do, as you know, and some people buy you know season memberships and all the rest of it. But on the whole, you, you don't have that um, you don't have that loyalty that you're trying to build using free tickets. So free tickets are less likely to be a good idea in racing than elsewhere. Uh, how worried are you now uh, in terms of cost of living steepling, prices rising ab- above inflation, people's wallets being hit pretty hard by taxation increases and fuel costs? How worried are you about the impact that's going to have on, on racecourse attendance and people just saying, look, this is too much. I can't afford this. No, we are, I'm worried about that. I think we are worried about that as a sector. And as you say, the, the inflationary cost and pressure, cost pressures on everybody really are quite staggering at the moment. So when it comes to your discretionary spend, in other words, how you spend that money you've got left over at the end of the month or the end of the week, uh, that's going to become much more difficult. And you know that's where racecourses may need to adjust prices to make them more affordable or more realistic um, for, for customers. Or what you might well find is that people save up and go to that special event. So you saw that, like at Cheltenham we saw the other week, uh, we might see that again at Aintree next week, where people really save up and go for a special event. And you can understand that. If they've only got a certain amount of disposable income and it's probably less than it used to be, then go and do something special with it. The risk of that then becomes those Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday fixtures we were just talking about and the pressure on those. So we are, we are anxious about that. Um, but we're not the only ones. We're all in the same boat uh, around the country, whether it's leisure events or sporting events or whatever it is. So it's not just us. David Armstrong there, Chief Executive of the Racecourse Association. Uh, and David Yates, once you've decided how much people should pay to get into a racecourse, then you can have the debate about how we should all be conducting ourselves when we, when we go to a, a sporting event. Um, I'm I'm reheating the pie that was you know, well and truly eaten in the days after the after the Cheltenham Festival. But there's a letter in the Racing Post today that's piqued your interest, Dave. I think it's very interesting, and and, and I I implore uh, those who run race courses to look at this. It, it's from a gentleman called Vic Knight. Well, I assume he's a gentleman. It's from Vic Knight in any case um, of Nottinghamshire, and. What Vic Knight proposes is alcohol-free zones on racecourses. And I think this is an excellent idea. If you are a stick in the mud who doesn't like uh, some bloke next to you in a tweed suit and no socks and one of those Baker Boy hats bellowing in your ear uh, that he wants to stay here drinking all the beer, um, then... The option may be to go to an alcohol-free zone where you can watch the racing and be relatively uh, unbothered by this. And, and I sound like a stick in the mud and a snob, but as we've, as I've said before when we've discussed this issue, I'm also a very keen follower of cricket. And my idea of, my idea of heaven, in some cases, is to go to a lovely day uh, at the test 
in one of the London grounds or indeed anywhere else. But my idea of hell is to go to one of those grounds and find that my ticket is next to, or even worse, bang in the middle of England's boorish Barmy army and have to listen to their uh, inane rantings all day. So I think that what Miss Brooks... Isn't the difference on, on a race course is there are lots of different areas you can go already. You don't need a, a, a specially designated area. If you, I mean, that, that's the thing. It's not as though you are, if you go to the cricket, you are effectively confined to, to your seat. I mean, you can nip out the, the bat, but you're not watching the action. On a race course, there are other, other places you can go. And the entire facility is not going to be overrun with, with people singing. Well, it's hardly ever run with people singing anyway, but the odd time it is, it's not, they're not going to be everywhere. Well, the, but the, the, the answer to that, I think, is that anyone can go, it, it, as long as you've got a badge, anyone can go anywhere on a race course. And that includes, I say, like, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not in any way against people having a good time when they go to the races. I've been to the race course and I've drunk uh, more than is good for me and probably been loud i hope i haven't been obnoxious and as, as i've said before it's incumbent on everyone who goes to the race course or indeed anywhere else to uh, to behave with consideration uh, towards others but i think that in theory what you say it, my problem with it is that is that if you want to sing a song about uh, staying here and drinking all the beer which is not oscar wilde let's 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 be honest about it, um, then you can go and do that anyway. Maybe if there are boundaries and sort of demarcations whereby you, you, you can't have a drink and you can't take your pint, that, that, might, that might help. I certainly think it's worth considering. Of course, you know, people will say, well, you're still going to better hear it. Race courses aren't that big and we can't, uh, we're not going to, we don't have the sort of money to um, put in soundproofed areas when we're, when we're struggling to pay uh, owners sufficient funds to keep the horses in training. But I, I do think it's something that's worth considering. Well, there's been a lot in the press recently, particularly in the last couple of days, about the burning need, particularly in Great Britain, to you know, heighten the awareness not only of the joys of racehorse ownership, but particularly the pleasure that can be derived from shared racehorse ownership. And racing's need, really, to get more people in the ownership net. With that in mind, a new initiative from GBR uh, and certainly revivifying the in the paddock concept has, uh, has come to a head and begins at Newbury later in the month. Uh, April the 16th. Newbury's Marketing Director Harriet Collins is with me now. Harriet, just tell me a bit more. Yeah, so Great British Racing and In the Paddock have uh, approached us about uh, the concept of reinvigorating racehorse ownership days across the country. Um, And they kick off with us at Newbury on the 16th of April, which is part of our racing experience day. Um, But there's a further six across the course of the year. Um, they go to York in on the 13th of May and Perth and Haydock, Windsor, Cheltenham and Ascot all the way until the end of November. So there's a, a lot to select from, but it really is about sort of showcasing the different elements of shared racehorse ownership. Over 60% of racehorses trained in Britain are, are raced in some form of shared ownership. So it feels appropriate that at a race course, that's where most people possibly are going to be able to, to find out a bit more, whether it's a, a club or whether it's a syndicate or whether it's a, a, a loan type, hot to trot sort of racing style. Um, there's loads to choose from. And we're going to have a syndicate village set up there where different syndicates and ownership clubs will be able to to come and exhibit um, 
what what their membership entails. So really, this is a, a sort of pioneering trade show for syndicate ownership. That's exactly it. There's going to be parades of horses before racing of of horses that actually are available to purchase or shares available in them. And then there's going to be a series of talks as well from different sort of racing personalities and trainers and syndicate managers before racing. Um, So it all sort of feels part of very much the day, especially, and it feels very natural that it's on a race course. And this is coinciding with a a big race day and a busy time overall for the race course and the surrounding area. Yeah, the spring trial is always a really good weekend. It actually falls over Easter this year. Um, Dubai Duty Free have sponsored it for a long time. And we're doing sort of racing experience elements across the day as well. So a very much a family feel across the day. Um, I think also importantly, Good Friday, Lambourne Open Day takes place the day before. So I think people really can make a bit of a weekend of it and go and visit the yards um, in, as part of the Lambourne Open Day on the Friday and then come racing on the Saturday and then find out more about about the ownership experience. Um, as I understand from Great British Racing, there are sort of ownership VR experiences, um, and there'll be lots going on across the day anyway. And of course, you want people to come to Newbury, not just then, but also this Saturday, which is your final jumps fixture, a little bit later than it normally is, the, the, the Mayor's finale. Yep, always a really sort of quite fun day. Um, we say adios to the to the jump season it's been really really fun here at Newbury and we've got some really good racing lots going on and we're also supporting the racing supports Ukraine um, appeal being sort of started by Charlie Mann with uh, which sees a convoy of horse boxes going over to the Ukraine border. Harry Collins there the marketing director at Newbury Racecourse and Dave uh, interesting hearing of, of the efforts being made for the Ukraine uh, appeal there uh, it, it emerged yesterday that, that Coolmore and particularly uh, John and Sue Magna ha, have stepped in in relation to uh, their Ukraine-born staff and their families. Yes, this was revealed during a, uh, an Aidan O'Brien press conference yesterday. Obviously, the um, the conflict in Ukraine and, and the, the victims of that conflict um, have been at the forefront, I think, of racing's uh, thinking over the past few weeks. Of course, the the National Hunt Chase at the Cheltenham Festival uh, was run under the uh, the Red Cross banner. There were collections over the four days uh, at the meeting. Of course, there was also the um, the mission of um, Sheen Murphy and Charlie Mann uh, to get supplies uh, to Ukraine as well. Yesterday, Aidan O'Brien discussed this. It, it's it's well known. Anyone who's lucky enough uh, to to visit Bally Doyle, one thing that it strikes you, and it shouldn't really, and and that is the um, the very broad uh, spect- spectrum of, of nationality of, of of staff who work there. Obviously, it's it's one of the most famous training uh, stables in the world. So they obviously get. Uh, letters from all, all over the globe and can choose their staff accordingly. Um, many of those are from Eastern Europe, some are from Ukraine and Aidan O'Brien told us yesterday that uh, John and Sue Magna have uh, have been instrumental in, in bringing over the, uh, the families of staff who are from Ukraine, that uh, they're being put up in uh, as Aidan said, all over the place in uh, B&Bs and, and basically all around uh, that corner of County Tipperary. So, yes, that's a, um, a, another aspect of, of how racing has uh, has sought to 
to help in, in you know, obviously a, a conflict that puts our own sport in a, and, and the travails within it in a, in a very sharp and, and stark context. It's also obviously going to, or evidently going to go on for uh, quite a while yet. And it's, it's, it's warming to see even, um, well, wherever people sit in the pyramid of horse racing that uh, they're trying to help the victims. All right, let's get to Hong Kong this week and J.A. McGrath. Hi, Nick. We're constantly referring to the prowess of the big two jockeys, Purton and Marrera, in this Hong Kong segment, and at the same time acknowledging that there are many other talented riders just picking up the crumbs from the top table these days. Jockeys such as Blake Shin, Alexi Bedell, and now Harry Bentley, who have all developed great expertise in this very difficult and challenging racing environment, and who definitely deserve better rewards than they're getting. It's a hard school. There's no escaping that. But the jockey who's emerged and consolidated his his position at number three on the list is Karis Teton, the Mauritian marvel. We love a bit of alliteration in Hong Kong. He's ridden 51 winners and he's clear third on the ladder, over 40 behind Marrera, but 19 ahead of the rest. Karis has enjoyed a wonderful month in March. He's ridden 11 winners so far this month, and I reckon he's going to add to that tally at today's all-dirt meeting at Sha Tin. I know, it's unusual to have a Sha Tin midweeker, but it happens from time to time, and it gives the turf track a little break prior to the build-up to Champions Day, April the 24th. I think Karis can post a double on this eight-race card, and both are for trainer Danny Shum. I refer to Majestic Star in the Class 1 Handicap Sprint, a course and distance winner two starts back. He's got great potential and is going to make it in the top grade. He's an I'm Invincible four-year-old and he's pretty smart. So race five, number four, Majestic Star. Take him in a tote swinger with number five, Master Montaro, who for the first time has the services of the Magic Man. There's that alliteration again. Karras has another good ride in race eight, number seven, Lightning Bolt, who's drawn wide, but that might be an advantage on a rain-affected dirt surface. It could be churned up on the inside by the last race. Hong Kong bravely soldiers on through COVID, coping with all sorts of difficulties due to quarantining. I'll have more for you on the Hong Kong beat next week. Well, thanks to Jim and thanks to all my guests today. David Yates is still with me and has a tip for you. Yes, we're going to the 8.30 race at Kempton Park tonight, and it's the top weight, number one, Luna Shadow. Uh, trained by Alan King, this daughter of Sea the Moon, returned from six months off uh, to be beaten a neck at Wolverhampton earlier this month. That was under Holly Doyle. Husband Tom Marcond is on board today. I hope that Luna Shadow can go one better. 8.30 race at Kempton Park selection, number one, Luna Shadow. Dave, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. Um, If you do enjoy the show, please do tell your friends and give us a rating or a review if you've got time. Uh, We will be back again tomorrow. That was Wednesday, March the 30th. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.